So today we're going to start a brand new series, and uh, we didn't hide the name of it. It's about Elijah. It's going to last us through the month, and so May has five weeks in it. We're going to be talking about the prophet Elijah for the next five weeks, and really just a couple of three chapters in the Bible. We don't know as much about Elijah as you would think we would know, but he lived in an interesting time. We live in an interesting time. I don't know if you've been following this discussion or not, but in recent years there's been lots of discussion of the nuns in America. Now, I'm not talking about N-U-N-S. I'm talking about the N-O-N-E-S. That's people that on their survey, their census, whatever it is they fill out, when asked about their religious affiliation, they say none. So we have a graph here that you can see of how that has grown since 2007. Now, what I want you to notice is, and you may not be able to read that from your seats, but what you would notice is that the top line, can you read what that line is in America? Christianity, all right? That is not what we call a positive trend, all right? So from 78% to 63%, and then at the bottom, if you look at the, uh, at the very bottom, if you look at the other religions, this is what's interesting. The other religions in America have grown. This is a Pew Research study from End of December 2021. That's as recent as I could get. Go back to the previous slide there, just for a second. If you'll notice, the other religions have only grown by 1%. And so it's not like all of that decline of Christianity is being swallowed up by other religions. It's being swallowed up by these people that say no religion. A 13% increase since 2007. So to put that in perspective a little bit, they, according to Pew Research, when they first started tracking this, the number of Christians to the number of nuns was 5 to 1. If you look at this most recent study, what's it closer to? 2 to 1. That's a significant shift. Now, a lot of people, when they hear that, think, wow, the atheists have really grown. People don't believe in God in America. See, we told you, America, we don't believe in God anymore. But that's actually not what is happening. Here's another chart, and this is going to be a bunch of numbers, and all the God's people said. I heard the math nerds out there, all right? So this is from 2007 to 2021, and you're not going to be able to see all the numbers. You can see some of them there. But what I want you to notice is the, the percentage of atheists in America has grown by a total of 2%. Not significant in polling. The number of agnostics has grown by 2%, but in the last few years it's almost stayed the exact same. What has really grown is the number of nothing in particular. What this study reveals to us is that a lot of people believe in God, a God, some God. They're just not sure which God or what that God represents. And so the question in America really is no longer, do you believe in God? Still, do you believe in some sort of God or think it's a possibility is 96% of the population. The question is, which God do you believe in? Which God is the right one is the one people are asking. Can we know if there is a right God? And if so, how? We've kind of come to this place in America where everybody thinks we can just, and it's, this is um, 
postmodern is or, or, you know, or, or however you want to phrase that term. This idea that we can take the parts from various religions that we like and kind of meld them all together into something. I believe in a God. I just think that I like to choose a little bit of Jesus teaching, a little bit of Muhammad's teachings, and maybe a little bit of Buddhism and a little bit of of this religion, some Eastern um, mystical religion, and some just good old-fashioned Southern common sense, and we'll put it all together in kind of a stew. You see this in popular culture, even the way some things are handled. There was a book that I read several years ago, a movie came out about it called Life of Pi, that would borrow from multiple religions as it talked through his philosophy of what life was. You even see this in... The most popular entertainment right now, if you look at movie and TV combined, is the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And just this week on their latest show that's showing on Disney Plus, I'm trying not to spoil this for those that are wanting to watch, a show called Moon Knight, character is wondering if they have died and they are told that they have. And he says, so this is the afterlife. And the other character, in the shape of a hippopotamus, representing an Egyptian goddess, says, this is not the afterlife, it's an afterlife. You would be surprised how many there are. The world we live in is a mishmash, that's the technical word, of religions all kind of put in together. Which is what the world that Elijah was walking into in what was supposed to be God's kingdom. Israel was founded as a monotheism under one fundamentalist truth that Yahweh is the one true God. The Lord Almighty is God and there are no others. In fact, you know this, right? What are the first two commandments? The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. The second one is, you shall make no image, craven image. Like the first couple are like, hey, don't do anything because I'm the only one, right? And they live that way. They'd had some issues, some problems here and there, but they'd always been kind of fighting against that. David, you can't imagine David building temples to false gods too much. Solomon started kind of going down that path a little bit. But this kingdom that God had brought together stayed unified for only 100, 150 years before it fractured. When it fractured, there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the southern kingdom had good kings, bad kings, in, out, with God. They were called Judah. The northern kingdom was called Israel. They had 19 kings before they were destroyed by the Lord's use of another nation to destroy them. And out of 19 kings, how many do you think were good? Zero. The Bible describes all of them as bad. Bad. Badder. Really bad. Really, really bad. One of them, out of the 19, was a guy named Ahab. Let me tell you a little bit about Ahab. If you've got your Bibles open to 1 Kings chapter 17 or your apps on that, just go back to chapter 16, just a few verses before chapter 16, verse 29, where it says this. Ahab, son of Omri, became king over Israel 
In the 38th year of Judah's king Asa, by the way, good king, good king Asa, Ahab son of Omri reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. But Ahab son of Omri did what was evil in the Lord's sight more than all who were before him. So until this point, you had bad, bad, worse, worse, and Ahab is the worst. Why is he the worst? Well, it tells us what he did, and then it's starting in the next verse. Then, as if following the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, were not enough, so that is marrying foreign wives, trying to describe all of that. If that wasn't enough, he married Jezebel. Boy, that's a name lots of girls have these days, right? Why do they not have the name Jezebel? Because of Jezebel. She was bad. Bad news. We'll see in a moment she helped to lead Israel towards other gods. In fact, she got so upset with the prophets of God messing with her life that she had lots of them killed. How many? We don't know. We know she replaced them with somewhere around several hundred other prophets. So lots of them. The daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. Now here's what's happened. Sidonia had a problem with the nation that Israel also had a problem with. And they thought we need to make an alliance so that we can fight against this other nation together. Well, in that day, do you know how you made an alliance with another nation? Through marriage. Why? Why would you have the son, or I mean the king of one nation marry the daughter of another nation? Because we know no grandparents going to attack their grandchildren. Right? And if they're family now, we're family, family. We can't attack one another. And so they did this alliance. But the problem was that alliance did not make the people in Sidonia more godly. It made the people of Israel more fallen. Because Jezebel had a particular hold on Ahab. She proceeded, or he did, to serve Baal and bow in worship to him. This is the king of Israel. He set up an altar for, altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he had built in Samir. There is a lot packed in that place. He set an altar for the people of Israel to worship the false god in the temple of the false god that he had built in the land that was supposed to be Israel. In their capital land. And he also made an Asherah pole. Now here's where we got to do a little explanation, all right? You have Baal. Now in their language, Baal was like just the general word for God. And so there are all kinds of Baals. But the particular Baal that we're talking about here seems to be the Baal of fertility. Well, how do we know that? Because Asherah was the goddess of fertility in their land. And they believed that Baal and Asherah worked together. I won't explain how. They worked together to provide fertility to the land. And so they thought if they worshipped Baal and Asherah enough, they would provide the rain that the land needed to grow the crops that they needed. And if there was a drought, it was because Baal and Asherah weren't happy enough. If there was plenty, it was because you were doing enough to help Baal and Asherah. And so what happens here is Israel, where the God of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is supposed to be worshipped as God alone, has set up a temple to a couple of people that they're trying to figure out how to please these false gods in order that they would bring prosperity to their land. And the result of that is, it says in the next verse, it reminds us, 
that Ahab did more to anger the Lord God of Israel. Listen, by the way, I don't want those words ever associated with my name. Amen? Than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So this is the moment when the nation of Israel is trying to figure out now, which God is the right God? How, how do we know? How do we serve him? How do we do? And onto that scene walks Elijah, the prophet of God. Chapter 17, verse 1 says this. Now Elijah, the Tishbite from the Gilead settlers, said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, in whose name, in whose presence I stand, there will be no dew or rain during these years except my my command. A couple of things here that we know about this. We don't know a whole lot about Elijah. Elijah especially to be such an important prophet of God. We don't know a whole lot about him. The Tishbite that it says that he is. There's a lot of dispute of whether Tishbe was even a place. Or if this was a general recognition that he's a settler from somewhere. Maybe an outsider. Maybe not even an Israelite in the proper sense of what they understand it, that he was a settler to this area, someone foreigner to this area, but God was going to use him in a specific way. Now, we don't know that for sure. We don't know a lot about him. What we do know is that his name tells us a lot about his family. I have a son named Elijah. He is named Elijah for a very specific reason. I have Shared with you on many occasions that Susan and I were told we could not have children of our own. And we went through lots of testing and medical stuff to figure out all that. And there was a particular moment when we had to trust the Lord completely with all that we have. And we kind of had one of those Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego moments. And we are going into the fiery furnace, not literally. And God, we believe you can give us a child. But even if you don't, we will declare that you are our God. And so the name Elijah literally means Yahweh, the Lord, is my God. And so it is our declaration for our son that Elijah, we are declaring in you that we see the Lord working in our lives. And the Lord is my God. In fact, you can name all four of our kids that because then God miraculously gave us four children when the doctor told us we could have zero But they would probably be awkward to have four Elijahs around, especially for Maddie and Ava. They might not appreciate that name. Eli 1, Eli 2, Ellie 3, Ellie 4, right? And so all we know is his parents, or whoever named him, believed Yahweh was the true God, the one true God. And he steps onto the scene, and notice what he attacks immediately, right? This king had set up a ritualistic place to worship the God that was supposed to bring rain. And what does God tell him? It ain't going to rain. Till I say it's going to rain, it's not going to rain. Elijah will tell you when it's going to rain. You have been seeking out the wrong God. That's all that happens here with this initial encounter. And then Elijah gets a word from the Lord. And the word of the Lord came to him. Leave here, turn eastward, and hide at the Wadi Cherith where it enters the Jordan. Why would he need to hide? He, he had to hide because he just confronted the king of Israel and told him, 
I'm going to shut up the heavens. And when the heavens shut up, what is the king of Israel going to try to do? Find him. You are to drink from the wadi. I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. Wait, wait, what? So he proceeded to do what the Lord commanded. Elijah left and lived at the wadi Cherith where it enters the Jordan. The ravens kept bringing him bread and meat in the morning and in the evening. And he would drink from the wadi. Now think about this scene for a minute. I can tell you this. If I were going to choose a food delivery system, ravens would not be at the top of my list. Can I get an amen? And they're not just bringing him some stuff. They're like bringing him a sandwich twice a day. Right? What's he got? Meat and bread. Twice a day. I don't know if they got it in their beak. I don't know if it's on one of their feet. I don't know if it's under a wing. I don't know how Uber Raven delivers at that moment. Raven Dash. I don't know how they do it. But every day God provides. Now I want you to notice something. We'll talk about this a little more in just a minute. Notice how he provides naturally for him by a running stream of water. And supernaturally for him because ravens aren't generally in the delivery food business. He does both of those. Elijah rests there, prepares there, seeks the Lord there, depends on the Lord in that midst. But then something changes. After a while, the wadi dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go up to Zarephath that belongs to Sidon and stay there. Now, let me just ask you a quick question. Do you remember where Jezebel was from originally? Sidon. So do you think Sidon, if she brought all of her gods with her, is a place that worships Yahweh or other gods? He sent him to the Baal Belt. Right? Right in the middle of it. Right in the middle of foreign worship. He's right there. Look, I have commanded a woman who is a widow to provide for you there. So Elijah got up and went to Zarephath. And when he arrived at the city gate, there was a widow gathering wood. Elijah called to her and said, please bring me a little water and a cup and let me drink. As she went to get it, he called to her and said, please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, as the Lord your God lives, I don't have anything baked. Now, here's the crazy thing. Uh, he, she calls him by his name almost. Remember what I said Elijah meant? The Lord is my God. What does she say? The Lord your God. Yahweh. Only a handful of flour in the jar and a bit of oil in the jug. Just now, I'm going to say, this is one of the most depressing verses in all of Scripture. When you think about the implications. I am gathering a couple of sticks in order to go prepare it for myself and my son so that we can eat it and die. What does that mean? It's all she's got. Now think about that for a minute. God sent Elijah away from a place where the ravens were providing him a sandwich twice a day and says it's time to move on for here. The wadi's dried up that he allowed to dry up and he dried up because of the judgment that God was bringing on the land of Israel. He moves him to a place where it's still under the judgment because they are the ones that 
that made the alliance with the people of Israel. He goes there, he gets there, and he says, a widow's going to take care of you. He finds the widow. You can imagine his excitement when he finds the widow. Hey, can you bring me some bread? You're the one supposed to take care of me. And she goes, I ain't got anything to take care of you with. I'm about to put these pieces of wood I can dig together into a little bit of a fire that I can make the last of the bread we have so my son and I can eat it, and then when we run out of food, we're going to die. Elijah said, don't be afraid. Go and do as you have said, but first make a small loaf from it and bring it to me. Afterward, you may make some for yourself and for your own son. For this is what the Lord God of Israel says. The flour jar will not become empty and the oil jug will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the surface of the land. So she proceeded to do according to the word of Elijah. Then the woman, Elijah, and her household ate for many days. The flour jar did not become empty, and the oil drug did not run dry, according to the word of the Lord he had spoken through Elijah. A couple of things I see in this story for us to understand about how God provides for his people. The first one's going to seem weird talking about the providence of God, but it is a necessary part of the providence of God. And the first thing we see in this passage is this. God attacks the idolatry of his people directly. These people had fallen into the idolatry of worshiping Baal and Asherah because they believed Baal and Asherah would bring the rain that would provide fertility on their land. And God says, if you think that's what they do and they are responsible for that and you have given your allegiance to them, I'm going to show you who's really in charge. Tony Evans says that an idol is any unauthorized noun, person, place, or thing that you look to to meet the needs in your life. And in this day and time, there were people that were looking to sun and moons and stars and trees to try to figure out how they could worship them so that they would get back what they needed for life. And so in their lives, they were replacing God with a person, a place, or a thing in order that it would provide for them, according to them, what they wanted based on their worship of these other things. And God says, I'm going to attack directly at what it is. Why? Because anytime our source for provision in our life is anything but God, we are setting ourselves up to fail. And so the most generous and kind thing God can do if there is idolatry in our lives is that he attacks the very idols of our lives to remove them from our lives so that our source is no longer a person, place, or thing that is unauthorized from God, but it is the Lord God Almighty. Now, the most famous scene in Elijah's life is what? The showdown on Mount Carmel, where he calls down fire and he's up against the prophets of Baal. But the first showdown of, of Elijah's prophet, prophetic life happens right here when he basically says, this is a proof of who is really God and your idol is not. Now, we don't worship Asherah poles anymore. But we have American idols for sure. People and popularity and power, possessions, prestige. That's some good preaching right there. That's five P's in a row. (laughs) People, popularity, power, 
possessions, prestige. Anytime we look to an unauthorized noun or, Tony Evans also says, an authorized something that's good in our lives, but we're looking for it to do something in our lives that only God should do. It's an idol. And so whether that's your work and your career, whether that's your family, whether that's the prestige that you're chasing down, whether that's the boat you got to have or the house upgrade you got to understand, God, the most loving thing he can do, if there is anything in your life that is getting in the way of your worship of him and him as your source, is to trouble or remove the idol from your life. And that's what he does here. That doesn't mean they respond well. Do you remember I told you the track record of Israelite kings? Ahab's pretty early in that track record of 19 kings, and everyone after him was... Bad. First thing we see in this passage is that God attacks idolatry directly. The second thing we see in this passage is that God provides for his people in unexpected ways. There's two in this passage for sure. The first is the ravens. I kind of joked about that a little bit, but let's admit that's kind of odd, right? You saw the graphic that we have for the series, the fire and Elijah standing there. That was, as I have a team of people that helped me kind of think through that and look through that, that's what all of them voted for. There was one that I really liked. It looked like something straight out of Edgar Allan Poe. It was a white background with just a raven on it. But man, that's cool. Because when we think of ravens, I think of Edgar Allan Poe. Spooky. A football team that always seems to beat us at the worst possible moments. Can I get an amen from the Titans fans in the room? Like, it's not good things. I see a raven flying to my house, and I go, oh, look at that raven. Isn't that beautiful? Come, y'all come look at this raven flying around. And yet, that's the bird God chose to deliver the meal. Now, why is that particularly strange? is because in Deuteronomy chapter 14, ravens are declared unclean by the Lord. You remember that where he lists all the things you can't touch, can't eat, can't be around? Ravens is one of those. And so he says that he's going to use Elijah to do the work of the Lord. And God says, or think about over in the New Testament when he says to Peter, who says, God, I can't get up and eat that stuff. And God says, don't let anything I declare clean become unclean to you. And he says, basically, I know that ravens are dirty. I know you're not supposed to eat anything they touch. I know you're supposed to be around them. But that's going to be your delivery system. The second strange way he delivers for for Elijah I'm doing Isaiah on Wednesday nights. I can guarantee you over the next five weeks, I'm going to say Isaiah in here and Elijah on Wednesday nights multiple times. All right. So y'all just roll with it. Just nod like we hit, we understand you, pastor. We got you. All right. So the second way he provides for Elijah is through a widow and a famine. You know who suffers the most in economic downturns? Not most of the time. I mean, not, not, not all the time, 100%, but most of the time. You know who suffers the worst? The marginalized and the already economically depressed. You know who suffered most with the economy in the pandemic? It wasn't the billionaires. Y'all remember all those stories about how Bezos and Zuckerberg's fortunes went up? 
It was the people that were already struggling. Do you know in the society that they would have been around, the people that would have been the worst financial situation before the town turn ever happened? The widows and the orphans. God says, I'm going to use somebody that doesn't have anything to provide everything for you. Unexpected ways. Listen, if we could map out how God was going to provide for the needs in our lives, then it wouldn't be faith. It'd be accounting. God doesn't call us to be accountants. He calls us to be faithful and to be people of faith. I don't know how God's going to provide for a specific need in your life, but I can guarantee you this. It'll probably be in a way that you don't expect, and you just trust the Lord to do it. Third thing we see in this passage is that God uses weak people. This is kind of hidden in the name of the wadi, the little brook, the little stream that he uses to give water to Elijah all those days. It was called the Wadi Cherith. That name in Hebrew means the Wadi of being cut down. The Wadi of breaking. And part of what this experience is for Elijah, I am convinced, is that God's going to use him in unbelievable ways. He has him declare to Ahab, this is what's going to happen. And then God sends him away for preparation for that. And the preparation for that is you're going to have to depend on me completely. You're not going to be able to depend on your strength, your ability, your mind, any of that. You are completely depend upon me. A.W. Tozer says that before God can use a man greatly, he must first hurt him deeply. 2 Corinthians 12.9 says that I will boast, this is Paul, all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That it is in my weakness that Christ is made strong through me. Matthew chapter 5 verse 3 says, blessed are the poor in spirit. God doesn't use people that are confident in their own abilities. God uses people that are confident in the faith they have in him. Here's the last thing and then we're done. God's providence for you comes in your providing for others. Now I want you to think about this for a minute. That's kind of a a loaded statement and then we're going to be done here in just a second. The way God provides for Elijah is by Elijah giving a word of the Lord to this woman who's in desperation. The way God provides for this woman is her providing first for Elijah. One of the ways that it seems to work in Scripture again and again and again is is that God wants to provide your needs by you serving other people first. We talk about this with mission trips all the time. And by the way, we've confirmed and we have dates. It was on the scroll at the beginning. Some of you have been asking. We are going back to Brazil. We officially have dates. We're not going back this summer because we couldn't get that worked out. But in September, we're taking a trip. And then next summer, the plan is for a full trip. But you hear people that go on those trips to Brazil or they go on a trip to Denver or they go on a trip to Los Angeles or they go on a trip to Club 180 or they go on a local mission trip. And one of the things that you'll hear people say oftentimes is, well, I got more out of it, I think, than the people that we serve. And part of that is because in God's economy, it is better to give than to receive. 
And one of the things as people of God, now this isn't creating your own blessing, it's not doing that. It's just being faithful to what God has called us to do, to serve other people. And as we do that, God will provide the needs in your life as well. So what does all that mean? You take those four things, you take this whole story of God providing through the ravens, God providing through the widow. What does all of that have to do with the culture in which we live? This is the first thing that we're going to learn from the life of Elijah is this. If God is not your God, if the Lord Jesus is not your God, then you've chosen incorrectly. Because only the God we serve can provide all our needs. And my question to you today is, first of all, have you ever accepted him as your savior? Have you ever accepted who God is, or if you've kind of tried to pull from different areas of different religions and kind of move it all together. There is one God, and His name is Yahweh. There is one way to salvation, and that's through Jesus Christ, His Son. The second question is for those of you that are believers in this room. How many of you in this room have been attempting to fill a need in your life through other means other than Jesus? Maybe you've even felt some of that attack on your idols from the Lord and you don't know where it's coming from. Perhaps they, you let that go. Over the next few weeks, we're going to see some amazing things Elijah does. We're going to see him raise the dead, literally. We're going to see him call fire from heaven. We're going to watch him go through one of the most difficult periods anybody in Scripture goes through. And yet the foundation of what God wanted to teach him and use him for was this, is that if your source in your life, if your source is not the Lord God, then you have chosen incorrectly. Let's pray to God. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for you. We're thankful for this moment, this day, and this opportunity. And we pray, Lord, that you'll give us wisdom about the decision you want us to make in this place today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.